This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. About your relationship with the ocean, because we were always proud, you know, we felt like we wanted to do something great for the ocean. When you really take stock and you look back at a show like that and you see how much the ocean was giving us compared to what we were really doing for her, I personally felt like our relationship was still out of balance and I was a taker. And I, and, and I don't think many people think about their individual relationship with the ocean. Are you giving her as much as she's giving you? Because the only way relationships can endure is if they're balanced. And so I think we suddenly saw we had an opportunity to become a servant of the future of the ocean, a servant of science of future generations, make a global impact. Pact. And, you know, we had done it. We had done that in that space and we pivoted. You know, I wasn't really ever a shark fisherman growing up. I'd caught my share of makos and thresher sharks and stuff, you know, but it's like, nah, it's not really fishing, you know, fishing marlin and tuna and swordfish, yellowtail, all that stuff. Um, and so I was like, well, yeah, we can do this. And you know, I knew somewhere in there we were gonna, um, it'll be using kind of similar stuff to like harpooning swordfish. You're gonna be, you know, the basket of line and you're gonna be using, you know, hand line and cable. These, because the end game, right? There's, you can you can fish sharks with a rod and reel, but at the end, how are you gonna get them up on that platform with, you know, a rod and reel? You're not, you're gonna have to shift over to some heavy tackle. Welcome back to this week's show here on Impact Outdoors podcast. Man, I can't tell you how excited I am that we've got two of my favorite people on the show today, and that is Chris Fisher and Brett McBride from O-Search, and um, man, just these guys are doing awesome things in the fisheries research world, and coming off their show, Offshore Adventures, I mean, it was just a a complete turnaround for these guys doing what they're doing now and, and being able to provide scientists with a way to go out and capture these animals on this boat that they're using the O-Search vessel and collecting this data that nobody has ever been able to get before and really 
starting to solve the puzzle of the great white shark and, and where their breeding grounds and, and nurseries are and all that and being able to come, come in and put in protections in place to, to help them in the future. So um, this is a great show. It's, it's really good to chat with these guys and, and hear stories from back when they first met and everything and, and uh, just really can't wait for you guys to hear it. So without further ado, man, let's, uh, let's welcome Chris and Brett on the show. Well, guys, um, thank you so much for being on the show today. We're, we're so blessed to have Chris Fisher and Brett McBride from O-Search on today. And uh, welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah, thanks for having us. Good seeing you guys. So um, I, I assume uh, with everything going on right now, where you guys, you know, you guys are on land, obviously, right now, um, probably spread out across the country in between trips. So where are you at right now, Chris? I'm at home in Park City, Utah, um, and uh, I bounce a lot between here and Florida. Uh, you yeah. know, Jacksonville University is the academic home of O-Search. Yeah. And, um, but you know, we're, this is kind of our in-between time where the guys are doing a lot of maintenance on the ship and getting ready, and we're doing all our annual planning to make sure we have, you know, the year paid for, and we have our plan for the year before right. we head back out on the water starting in early March. Yep. So... And Brett, I assume you're probably out in California somewhere. Yeah, I'm in San Diego right now, home in San Diego. Yeah, good deal, man. Man, one day, me and you are going to go tuna fishing out there. So, Come on, come on <laughs> out. Love, yeah, it's been to, great last love year. Love to get out there and go. So, Well, um, man, I wanted to have you guys on the show. Um, I've followed you guys for a long time. You know, we've met and stuff and done some work in the past together. And um, I really want to just kind of talk about your two guys' history together and kind of where that's come to today with O-Search, you know? So, I mean, um, either one of you guys want to kick it off and just kind of, um, I mean, first of all, how'd you guys meet? Go ahead. I'll pass that to Chris. You <laughs> <laughs> better talker. Yeah, well, you know, I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. <laughs> Brett grew up in San Diego. And um, um, I was working and I got moved to California I didn't uh, work on the water when I came out of school. I came out of college in the early 90s and worked for a small business. And I got moved to California to study to uh, manage our sales in California and then our sales over in Asia. And that company I was working for was sold in 1997. And that was when I really started to try to turn my passion into my profession and uh, began to spend a lot of time on the early 90s while I was still working at that company on the water there off Southern California. And, uh, and then all of a sudden I found myself 29 years old and not really knowing what to do next and really wanted to do something on the water and began spending time there and got a boat. And then I'll pass it off to Brett. That, that led me to meet Brett. <laughs> yeah, it's about when we met, you know, I, I had, uh, I grew up in San Diego and you know, I, I grew up on the sport boats here and um, down in Fisherman's Landing. Used to work on the Prowler and Qualifier 105 and, and several of the other boats. And uh, um, when I graduated high school, I moved down to Cabo San Lucas and um, I, I lived down there for about 20 years, a little over 20 years and um, had been, you know, fishing tournaments and running you know, from boat to boat. And then uh, Chris got his boat um, and, and uh, a friend of ours, friend, a mutual friend was running his boat at the time, Billy Seiler. And uh, he just called me up one day and asked me if I wanted to uh, 
come on over and give them a break. And uh, so I said, sure. And I went over to, uh, was it Nextapa? I think we were at, uh, met Chris over there and he had his 48 Viking at the time. And uh, we went fishing and had a good time. And uh, um, we decided to uh, start a partnership from then. And um, I called Billy back and asked him, uh, and he, he said he wasn't uh, interested in keeping the job. I think that was how it was intended to be in the beginning. I just didn't quite realize it, but um, we've uh, been fishing together ever since. It's been a great ride. Wow. Yeah, I guess it's been a little over 20 years now. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome, man. So uh, he was he was 29, I was 30. So, you know, Ooh, same age. Lord, it's been 23 years. <laughs> Shoot. Well, you know, Chris, when you got the when y'all got the the go fish vessel and stuff, I mean, how soon after that? I mean, where did ESPN come in when y'all started up offshore adventures and, and you know, it just kind of blew up from there. I mean, so what happened was there when I met Brett, it totally kind of really expanded my relationship with the water, right? You know, I was a passionate fisherman and had been all my life growing up in Kentucky. Um, and then kind of going down to the Gulf of Mexico and moving to California and kind of checking out the Pacific. But Brett had a much broader, more holistic relationship with the ocean. You know, there was the fishing, of course, but then there was the free diving and there was the food and there was the, hey, when we go fishing, man, we don't, why go fishing for a day if we're going to get all this stuff together? Why don't we just kind of go out and not come back for a week? Um, and it really began to expand my relationship with the water. I started to see that fishing all these in-between places that were far away mm -hmm. rather than just day boating was much more fascinating. Uh, we began to free dive a lot. Um, and he was an excellent mentor in that space, which led to spear fishing. You know, we were free diving and spear fishing, you know, before anyone, it was really a thing, you know, now yeah. it's become a thing in the last, I would say, 10, five or 10 years. Um, and so that started happening and we were enjoying it. And I was looking to try to kind of turn my passion into my profession, which was the water. So the first thing we did actually was I signed up and did the first year of what was called the BXRL, which was this Bill Fishing Extreme Release League. What was the name of that guy, uh, Brett? Norm Isaac. Norm Isaac and his son, Darren Isaac. And we went, we did the first season of that, very expensive, um, but but it, I, we kind of got to see what it took to make a show on the water. And I remember we were in a place like Isla Mujeres or somewhere and we went out and we caught a bunch of sailfish and we went back in every day and they were counting the sailfish. I'm like, you know, this is not nearly as cool as what we do every day with Brett on the water where we go out for five or seven days and we're fishing and free diving and staying in remote places where there are no other boats. <clears throat> and then you're waking up on the spot and you're fishing until dark and then going to bed on the spot. You know what I mean? There is no getting there two hours after light and having to leave two hours before dark, right? You're there at prime time, you're living on the spot. And so we said, hey, why don't we try to make a show about um, fishing, free diving and food? And, and that's really what led to Offshore Adventures. And really it's a manifestation of Brett's vision, right? I mean, it's Brett's relationship with the water. Um, I'm a willing student. My ex-wife Melissa was at the time um and we were really just trying to you know facilitate that vision and enjoy that journey and and really 
it's a lot about Brett and a buddy of his named David Trailer at that time who was bringing the food component and was also a big right. diver and a mate. Yeah. Well, it was about the ocean. It was letting the ocean be the, the number one. And, you know, it's like the, uh, I had been fortunate to work on a lot of long range yacht fishers instead of just sport fishers, you know, um, 80 and 100 foot stuff that we'd go down to um, Reviki Halos, you know, do 14 day trips and go up to to Alaska or all the way down into Costa Rica and Panama in the early days. So the getting there and staying there and being remote and stuff was just, um, just so much more, um, intriguing to me and, and to us, you know, when we started doing offshore adventures, it was just like, okay, get that bigger boat and just go. And, mm-hmm. you know, there was I'm showing back up at the dock just seemed to be a waste of time. Like why, why, why leave in the evening and instead of just put the sea anchor out or anchor up in that close by Island or, so that just became our whole MO and, and the, that's what all what Offshore Adventures was about. It was about uh, showcasing the ocean and what it was giving to us. So having, uh, having a world-class chef involved um, just made it that much better. And, you know, yeah. we would go, we, would, us, we made 188 Offshore Adventures and we would go on, I think, eight 12-day trips a year. So almost every month, right? Every month and a half. And so we were moving between the Panama Canal, Ecuador, really a little south of there, all the way up through Southeast Alaska. And we were just kind of doing like a two to three year loop up and down and up and down, man, it was awesome. (laughs) I mean, when I look back on it now, I mean, wow, what a crazy experience. And I tell you, I never ate, that was the best phase of eating in my life by far, that whatever 10 year window or eight year window, nine year window. right? And y- y'all had y'all had such a um, a unique perspective as far as the TV show format for y'all's y'all's show. And I mean y'all y'all brought the fishing, like you said, the food. But you also brought the culture when you would go inshore to some of the areas that you were near, and it was cool to see that, you know, and and give people an opportunity to kind of understand, you know, what it's like in that area, not just on the water. You know, most of the shows now, I mean, it's it's all about product placement and and just you know catching a fish or killing an animal yeah you all are very educational you know so and it and that, that show had a big impact on me you know i mean i was just coming out of college and still trying to figure out what i want to do and you know look where i ended up down here in galveston you know doing you know marine biologists and stuff so um thank y'all for for all that you know it was fun a lot of stories like that you know so, couples who would get a boat and go and follow where we went and you know it was uh it was, it was a really, really, you know, cool thing and bringing the culture in was great. You know, a lot of things happened with that show that changed, I think, the outdoor TV that came after it. Like, you know, my ex-wife, Melissa, was really one of the first women coming into outdoors. And then after that, everyone started doing this kind of couple hunting show and mm-hmm. couples, the women started to come into the outdoors, which was great, yep. right? The food started to come into the outdoor TV shows, which was great. You know, back then it was just like, Guys would fly into a town, get on a boat, day fish, and go home. And so it really changed it a lot. And, um, um, oh, goodness, I was just trying to remember something. But it was, it, was, it was really a lot led by Brett and David. And, oh, the one thing that I, that I just don't think anyone really understood about Offshore Adventures, which has led to the success of um, O-Search, is that, you know, people can – fish out of the same port every day and get pretty good right you know they're fishing out of the same spot they know when the wind they know the current they know the high spots they know this is then and what time and where 
that's not that hard, you know, if you're doing it a lot, right? right. But here's Brett. This boat is never moving. I mean, never stopping. We're like, oh, Brett, we're going to be in Alaska and we're flying in the day, two days after the boat gets there. And by the way, you got to catch, you know, and then we're going to be in Canada and then we're going to be in Ecuador. And then we're, so he's had this, he is the most gifted waterman I've ever met because there are a lot of good fishermen fishing out of ports all over the world. I don't know a lot of people who can get on a boat and go anywhere and find them quickly. It's much, much harder. And he really has a gift for that. But, and I don't think people really understood that when they watched a show like Offshore Adventures or they think about O-Search and I'm like, hey, Brett, okay, the ship's going to be in Africa in 60 days and we got a 40-day window to get them. So, and he's got to figure the whole thing out and get them, right? And he was doing that every day at Offshore Adventures, everywhere we went. And it's a, it's a very unique skill. And it's a skill that I think most people don't even really know is happening because he makes it look so easy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, you didn't have all the answers from everybody on the internet back then either. I mean, I know it wasn't that long ago, but you know, now <clears> you <throat> just find anything on online where they're biting and that kind of thing. So, uh, but yeah, that's cool, man. Brett, you're definitely awesome at that, man. Well, I appreciate <laughs> that. Thanks guys. I, uh, it's it, the puzzle is the fun part for me. Once I, once I get too uh, familiar with an area, I start losing some of the, uh, the passion for going out there because there's nothing, you know, it's not just figuring it out. It's just putting fish on the boat at that point. So it's been a blessing for me to be able to, you know, to be provided with the kind of environment that I get to go and, and figure it out every place I go. When I was, you know, one of the best ways to go is just meeting the people. If you have enough time to spend a little time at the dock, I mean, just go to your lo local drinking hole and belly up to a bar and, and be, um, be all ears really, you know, mm -hmm. but you know, you get, you get a lot of information um, just by, just by doing that. And then, you know, when you, of course, year after year, then you show back up and you've got some techniques and you got some spots to start out at and stuff too. So, right. Right. So, so I've always wondered, you know, the weather was always seemed like it was pretty good on the show, but I know you guys probably had to go through some crazy weather events while y'all were out. And, um, uh, what was some of the craziest stuff that y'all encountered out there as far as weather and, and, uh, and, and things like that, you know, obstacles that pop up. Well, I tell you one thing: uh, it always looks calm, more calm on camera for some reason. It's really hard to show weather on a camera. So even if even if it's pretty uncomfortable, um, the camera doesn't pick up on that until it shows something kind of falling over, or somebody stumbling, or something like that. Um, the you know the the go fish, you know, it was a, a seventy-two foot, and it was really an extended sixty-five. So um, it wasn't the best weather boat. I mean, it was a, it was a really good versatile fishing boat. You know, it was a kind of a yacht fisher, full walk around. I love to fish on the boat. It's an amazing boat. Um, but it wasn't the kind of, it, it was a far cry from what the O-Search is now. You know, I mean, it's like we, um, getting that close together, stacked up um, stuff coming around, um, you know, coming into Costa Rica one time. I and mean, we just almost ripping the pul pulpit off the thing, just because, just because it's too close together and stacked up, you know, six foot close together could be, pretty bad for us a western caribbean coming out of the canals just seems nasty yeah anywhere in the caribbean was tough on that boat you know when we went up there it was just it was tough but um you know and, and then i was on the boat probably a few hundred days a year during that time you know making making these crossings and stuff that you wouldn't see um but then we'd be able to pick our time you know you'd have to um nowadays when we have the o search you know it's it's a little like you're gonna go unless there's something really really big um you know a 
a gale doesn't even really stop us. If we have to get someplace, we'll just pound through it. I mean, we just came home and 50 knots of wind and, you know, 20 foot seas um, just recently. Um, and it's, you know, that, that is a, a really incredible machine to get through that weather, but it, it really, it means that you're going to go even if you didn't, if you don't want to. So um, the calendar, yeah. we can stick to the calendar. Yeah. And when, and when we're working, you know, I think we've learned a lot over the years you know, you, you can't really take anything from the ocean when she's ready to give it to you. She gives you a weather window and she gives you an opportunity. And I think as we've gotten older, the boys get nailed on these crossings and deliveries because they have to make a calendar and things like that. But when we're actually working now, you know, if the weather's, we're, we're old bulling it, you know, we're back, you know, rather than young bulling it, you know, like if the weather's coming in, we're trying to be tied up before it comes in. And we try to get back out on the spot a little while after it's laid down. So you just don't get too beat up. We can't really work anyway because the uh, constraints of the current operation. But, yep. you know, you can't really take anything from her. You just got to listen to her and obey. That's the best path forward. Yep. So we've gotten better at that as we've gotten older. <laughs> yeah. Shoot. So, so I know, and I know kind of the backstory of this, but I'll let you explain, Chris, but you know, the transition from kind of the, when Offshore Ventures was kind of winding down and y'all ran into this vessel, you know, that's now the O-Search, you know, and you were already taking some people out. Kind of talk to us about the transition time and then and then we'll just go right into what you guys are doing now. So the it really happened, Brett and I, we were coming in on a shoot. I don't know if we'd been out at Cocos Island or we were coming down the line and uh, we hadn't gone to Cocos yet, but we pulled into Los Sueños down in Costa Rica and the boat was sitting in, on anchor in the bay there in front of the marina with a 45 foot game boat on top of it. And we had, we had been taxing the go fish. We were pushing it way harder than it was really capable of doing. I mean, we were piling fuel bladders on it and, you know, it wasn't made to go back and forth between Alaska and Panama. That was, it was a great Southern California Baja type perfect rig. Uh, but we were, we knew we were maxed out. And we've been doing it for a while. And really when we saw the original one, it was called the Arctic Eagle at the time, a guy named Frank Miles, wonderful guy, um, owned it. Um, he was using it as a global mothership, you know, like you could go anywhere and offload the boats and fish where there were no people. And that's kind of what hit us, you know, anywhere, anytime that more capacity to be out longer, more stable, take boats to places that can't get there on their own and then use it like a mothership. And we wanted to really, in the beginning, we wanted to finish the journey that Zane Gray never completed when he was writing his books, which was from Panama to New Zealand and kind of fished the last virgin seas. And we were talking about things like the science of fishing and, and, and that, but we couldn't, I couldn't sell that. I couldn't, and I'm not, I had to create a business around it to pay for the boat. I can't pay for the boat on my own. I have to have a business around it. And, um, we couldn't sell that. And while we were doing that, we had the scientist named Michael Delmeyer come up to us who we were tagging some black marlin for because we were helping scientists study other things. We realized that the scientists typically have no boats, no money and can't catch what they study. Yeah. But you can't change the future of the ocean on a fisherman's story. You need a peer reviewed published paper. And what we didn't have happening was our best watermen, guys like Brett and uh, leading scientists coming together to help them get the data we need so that we can make sure there's fish in the ocean for our grandkids. And so while we were doing that, they all started in around 2005 telling us about this major shark crisis. And another um, article just came out from the New York Times in the last 48 hours 
talking about the global shark crisis. Uh, they started to say like, we lose the sharks, there'll be no fish for our kids to eat, right? They are the apex predator of the balance. They keep the second tier of the food chain from wiping out all the fish that we need to grow up for our kids and for us to enjoy and see an ocean full of fish. And we didn't know about the shark problem at the time. So our natural response was, well, certainly somebody's helping the scientists with the large sharks, just like we're helping you with black marlin or sailfish. They're like, they're so big, we've never been able to study them. And when you see what scientists have been doing till then and other scientists, it's, you know, they're harpooning things into sharks using like extremely primitive methods. There was no team of scientists using a clinical approach, more like a human getting a, a full physical where you have a team of doctors or a team of scientists and safe access. So you can quickly determine, you know, in five years, you can learn what they can't learn in 50. Um, and, and that's by having safe access to the animal so we can figure out where they're mating, where they're giving birth, full migratory range, nursery range, gestating, and, and solve their life history puzzles to help to bring these sharks back because we're down to about 9% of our large <clears throat> sharks, losing 100 million sharks. And, and simply what most people don't understand is sharks are the guardians of our fish stocks. They are not the ones that eat our fish stocks. They are the guardians of the fish stocks. They prevent things like seals and squid from wiping out all the fry and bait and over foraging. And uh, if we don't have a lot of sharks, our great grandkids aren't gonna eat fish sandwiches. So when we realized that how important they were, we realized that there was no real capacity in the space and there was no Brett McBride, no world-class practical waterman, you know, coming together with leading scientists to get that data. We pivoted and, and that was 2007. We still made offshore adventures through 09 but the first expedition we went on to capture sharks was 2007 to Guadalupe Island. And it was really just, you know, this might sound a bit odd, but you know, when you've done 188 shows and you're driving around in a white boat and eating gourmet meals, you know, mm -hmm. and you start to really think about your relationship with the ocean. Cause we were always proud, you know, we felt like we wanted to do something great for the ocean. And when you really take stock and you look back at a show like that and you see how much the ocean was giving us compared to what we were really doing for her, I personally felt like our relationship was still out of balance and I was a taker. And I, and, and I don't think many people think about their individual relationship with the ocean. Are you giving her as much as she's giving you? Because the only way relationships can endure is if they're balanced. Mm -hmm. And so I think we suddenly saw we had an opportunity to become a servant of the future of the ocean, a servant of science, of future generations, make a global impact. Pact. And, you know, we had done it. We had done that in that space and we pivoted. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, most people, they just want, you know, they just want to go out and catch their fish and get their limits and, and don't really think about, you know, their impact on it besides that and what they could do to give back so or just pick um, up trash when you're driving around and you yeah, see it yeah or go do a beach cleanup or a, a cleanup dive or do something because yeah. i mean you know think about every sunset every beautiful sunrise every fish every epic dive if everybody bought their relationship with the ocean into balance their own personal balance a lot of amazing things would happen for the ocean mm-hmm Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. 
hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Yep, and so so y'all ended up getting this vessel, and I want to know what Brett's first thoughts were about how the heck he's going to get this shark onto this lift, you know? I mean, <laughs> did you envision the process? He didn't want to go. He's like, white yeah. sharks. I don't yeah. like sharks. Oh, sharks are for people who don't know how to catch fish, man. I remember <laughs> that back in the day, bro. You know, I'm like, he said if we help him, it could do a lot of good, bro. We got to try to help him. <laughs> well, we were, in a, we were in a place right then. And when you called me and asked and said, hey, you think we can do this? And it was like, well, of course, because we didn't, because I think offshore adventures were going to come to an end right then. If, it, yeah, if yeah. we didn't do that, then what were we going to do anyway? We'd have to yeah. reinvent ourselves somehow. Um, so I was like, well, yeah, we can do it. But yeah, I just, I hadn't really got my head too much around it. I mean, you know, I wasn't really ever a shark fisherman growing up. I'd caught my share of makos and thresher sharks and stuff, you know, but it's like, nah, it's not really fishing, you know, fishing marlin and tuna and swordfish, yellowtail, all that stuff. And, um, and so I was like, well, yeah, we can do this. And, you know, I knew somewhere in there we were going to, um, it'd be using kind of similar stuff to like harpooning swordfish. You're going to be, you know, the basket of line and you're going to be using, you know, hand line and cable these because the end game, right. There's, you can, you can fish sharks with a rod and reel, but at the end, how are you going to get them up on that platform with, you know, a rod and reel? You're not, you're going to have to shift over to some heavy tackle. So, um, in Michael Domar, actually, he came out with the, the hooks in the beginning. He had some big J hooks, um, you know, almost like flying gaff hooks that he had bent, um, in, in, into like a semicircle, and then we um, we had that. We knew we were going to go cable. Something we started off in, in Guadalupe Island. Those sharks are huge, and you're in deep water, so it was a it was a lot to figure out in that first time. But we had uh, we had the right guys there. You know, Jimmy the Kid was with me, and and he's um, you know he's a really talented leader man and fisherman himself. And um, so you know. It, it was the hardest part was going to be how to how to get them the, the end game. How are we going to get them up on that platform? We knew the rest of it. We'd probably put them in the lead, kind of like you would with a big swordfish, and we did all that. But um, there was still a lot to figure out. Yeah, I can't though. imagine. I can't imagine the first time jumping on off that boat. I mean, every time I'm just like, man, does he ever get splinters jumping well, off that thing barefoot onto that deck? Before he goes into the very first one. Before he goes into that, though, <laughs> you got to remember. We got to not just get them into the platform. We got to let the scientists do their work and we got to let them go alive. Yeah. This is a totally different task than catching a white shark and not caring, you know, like if it dies. Yeah. This is which we would do with rod and reels much more frequently. Yeah. So that's the, that's the, the task. Remember, the here. task is not just to catch the shark, <laughs> the task is to catch the shark create safe access in the cradle for the scientists so they can do. Now we do, I think uh, there's 24 different research projects on every shark and then let it go alive in good shape, strong. So now back to the splinters, but that's the task, not just catch, catching a shark is easy, even a big one. If you don't care, if you're going to kill it, you know, yeah. uh, but catching it and, and creating safe access, getting that work done and letting it swim off strong. That's a whole nother deal. 
Yeah, the fear of failure is the thing that drives me. It's, it's it's not, oh, this is fun. Let's go catch a big target. In fact, there's really nothing really that fun about it. It's, it's neat to look back on. It's, it's awesome creature and everything like that. But if you're in my shoes, all you fear, all you feel is the fear of failure. Like if, if this shark dies, it's because I did it. I, you know, I didn't do something right. I killed it. And we have permits that are going to get yanked. We have the whole world is watching. So we become instantly hated. You know, there's just a lot that there's way more that can go wrong than can go right. There's only one there's it's either going to go right, they, you know, and it has to every single time, because if you start having any failures, you're over. I mean, this whole thing's just it has to be, you know, go back to the drawing board. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and like Chris said, I mean, y'all got to maximize your time with that animal once it comes out of the water onto the lift, you know, and it's crazy watching. And I really appreciate what y'all did this last year, you know, doing some live streams, you know, while y'all were processing the fish on deck and, and getting to see how much work is being done, you know, just a matter of a few minutes, you know, and, and, uh, what's the average time you think you guys have got one animal on the, on the, on the lift right now? Well, when they're on the lift, I mean, you know, it's, it's average is 15. I would say be the average because sometimes it's 12, sometimes it's 18. It's almost, it's always under 20. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think the most fascinating thing that's been the journey of the angling and Brett beginning to understand how to handle these animals and the speed at which we catch these animals, because I would say to you, we don't really catch these white sharks anymore. We quickly train them. I mean, you don't catch a 4,000 pound white shark in 40 minutes. It's not tired. It's chosen to give up, mm -hmm. right? Or a thousand pound white shark in six minutes. These, uh, these animals are choosing to give, give up because of how Brett's handling them. Sometimes they don't even know that they're caught until they're all the way at the cradle, um, which has driven our stress levels way, 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 all the way down as low as they can be. And that has been a fascinating journey. This is much more like teaching a dog how to heal or breaking a horse than catching a fish on a rod and reel. Yep. Yeah. It's the, it's the size of the tackle that the end game, having to have such heavy tackle in order to get them up onto that cradle. Cause you would bend, you'd bend hooks out and you would, you know, break leaders and wire um, trying to get them at the end. So we're, we're, you know, when I'm fishing our sets of gear, like if it's in, 60 feet of water or less, which most of the sharks are in 80 feet or less that we're fishing, unless we're fishing offshore and really good weather for some reason. Um, but a lot of this stuff will be in 25, 30 feet of water. And I've got, you know, I've got a 45 foot leader and I have cable embedded in rope so it doesn't cut into the animal side when they get wrapped up. It's easier on our hands. But if I can set my gear and I, I watch it get bit and I'm instantly on it and I can just as soon as I know that the hook's in the corner of the mouth, I can get in front of the animal and put them in a lead in the very beginning of the fight. Um, you wouldn't be able to do that with a rod and reel because it can dictate, it can just turn and run from you. Um, but if you have the right tackle um, and you can predict where he's at and you know you have a water depth or you might have a reef on one side, you can just get right in front of the animal and it has a it can't put on the brakes, so it can only try to do a hard turn. If you're able to put enough pressure on it and stay just in the right position, um, between the leader man and the boat driver, you can just frustrate it until it just learns real quick. Okay, I'll just follow the boat. And there's been certain fights where we have an accelerometer now on them, so we can actually um, analyze the the fight as from the stress being put on the accelerometer. And you can see in some of them, it looks like there's zero fight time because the 
it, we just predicted the shark's speed and direction so well that and we got in front of it and put enough pressure on it that it just instantly just was trained to follow the boat. Then at that point, we just can lead it right back to the boat. And until we get the buoys actually up on the face, then it's not, then it's really, that's when I actually realize there's a fight because now there's buoys on its face. But by that time, it's already kind of gotten comfortable with you. And, and it's, there's sometimes, I mean, we really look at and go, there really wasn't even a fight involved. And I know it's hard for people to believe. They're looking at it and go, you guys have got to be, and they've probably heard, oh, you're fighting them to exhaustion. It's like, it really couldn't be any further from the truth. That's not what we want. We, we want a shark to go on there with no stress at all if we can. Um, and, and in certain situations, with, we've gotten to, to almost zero fight time. But a lot of times, it's even on real big ones, you know, the real fight is less than 10 minutes. And that's just repositioning the boat. And that's because if it goes real hard one direction, we just go, okay, let it go. I don't want to, I don't want to bend a hook or break a hook or test something out. When there's no need to, all I got to do is dump a little bit of line, reposition the boat, get back in front of it again. And, here, and then it's like, you know, just outsmarting it. Yeah. I mean, you, you can see that, right? Like if you were catch a 4,000 pound white shark could fight you for multiple days if it chose to, you know, and we're catching them in 30 minutes. Yeah. It's catching a thousand pound animals in four to six minutes. I mean, they're not even trying to fight because they know that he's frustrated them. They've given up. You know, they've just kind of surrendered. When he brings the, sometimes you see those guys out there, a shark will pick up the buoy, the bait and start walking off with the buoys and the guys will go up there and they're like so quiet and they'll try to pick up those buoys and get out in front of that shark so it doesn't even know it's hooked. And then if the shark's not swimming at the ship, they'll just give it like a little tug on the corner of its mouth till it kind of goes into a turn, doesn't even know what's happening. And then once it starts swimming toward the ship, they kind of lay off and they walk it back on the, like with belly in the line, like a dog on a loose leash. It's fascinating. Yeah. There's really times when we'll test it out after, you know, the, the, some of this thing you might call fight time is us just going from where the gear was set to where the ship is. Right. Cause the ship is not mobile with us. We have to bring the shark back to it. And sometimes that might be a little further than other times. So, um, and during that time, would be heading right toward the ship and let's say five, 10 minutes go by. And I'm just curious if I just dump line, will the, will the shark still follow the boat? And more often than not, yeah, the shark will just continue following the boot, the bubbles of the, the props um, for like a minute before all of a sudden starts wandering off one direction. So it's on, completely under its own power, not being pulled on at all. There's maybe like a five foot buoy, a belly behind, you know, behind his mouth um, before it comes back up. So that really shows that, the shark is not being it doesn't realize it's fighting anymore it's just swimming yeah yeah and so so one thing i wanted to ask both of you guys was you know since those searches come out and y'all tagged all these animals and, and and knowing what the public perception was about sharks in general beforehand and where it is today i mean you guys have had such an impact on that i mean where do you guys see it at now i mean do you see you know so many more people are, are turning their attention to protecting these animals, you know, from the work you guys are doing and others around the world, or you still see it as, as more fear-based? Well, it just depends on, you know, the people who come in with the fear-based things are people who aren't really like ocean people. You know, they're like someone who's writing an article who lives in a city and they, 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 ha they don't really spend time thinking the system through. Um, I think, uh, you know, we knew we had to solve the science puzzle. Our, singus, our single biggest challenge in making sure there's an ocean full of fish for our kids is data deficit and time. That's how the whole science community and everyone summarizes it. We don't have all the data we need to manage. 
and we're running out of time. So that's like the blanket statement for the biggest challenge the ocean has. And that challenge was huge in the large shark space, right? They had no data, limited data. And, um, and so we knew we had to solve and overcome that problem, but we also in the early days knew we had to overcome this kind of, we had to shift the tone of the conversation around sharks was what you're kind of talking about here. Cause it wasn't gonna matter if we had that data and everyone was still freaking out because they thought the sharks actually behaved like Jaws in the movie, which would, which right. is totally fictitious and is totally fake, right? So I think we really focused, and we still do it in the early years on not only in, in parallel solving the science puzzle, opening it up to everyone so people could be in it in real time, and then giving the sharks a voice, right? So that they could communicate with people, they can help them understand what their life is like. And when you look at a shark like Mary Lee, who cruised up and down the East Coast of the United States, or Catherine, uh, these sharks had hundreds of thousands of followers on social platforms. Um, they, were, they had thousands of articles written about them. And it was always about where are, they, where are they now? What are they doing? And why are they important? Could they be mating? Are they birthing? Welcome back to Charleston, Mary Lee. Like, when did you ever see people like, Mary Lee's back? Oh, my God, let's have a party. You know, uh, so we did shift that tone. We dramatically impacted people and what they think about sharks and understanding that it, without a lot of sharks, there's no fish sandwiches for our grandkids. And... Um, and I, I think that that has been as important as the science. I do. And then other people have piled in on that, you know, um, and it's great because it's going to take us all. Um, but no, I think shifting the tone of the conversation is, is as important as collecting the data and understand how to manage their nursery or their mating site or their birthing site. And um, yeah. it's all super important. And, and I do think, you know, come on, man, there's places where a white shark will be on the beach. And 10 years ago, people would have gone run down there and cut out its jaw. You know, and now there's hundreds of people out there digging trenches, trying to drag it back into the water. It's a great thing. Look, we're still in trouble with the shark thing. We have the capacity to solve the puzzle and win now. And our white sharks on the east and west coasts of the United States are recovering. But when you look at the high seas, it's still a total catastrophe for sharks outside of the United States. Um, and, and, and we now have the ability to get the data sets we need. And I think we have the mm -hmm. awareness that people understand why that's important. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you guys seen, I'm sure, the video that came out of Florida, what, last week with the guys that had the encounter on the boat mm -hmm. on the center console, you know, and they're sitting there, you know, I think they actually tried to touch the shark, which I don't recommend doing, but I mean, you know, they were sitting there videoing it and documenting it and, and putting it out there for people to see, and and uh, we see so much more of that now with, with social media, you know, just you hear about these white shark en encounters and sightings and stuff, and uh one day, one will show up over here by Galveston. I hope. I hope I'm alive to see it. So, but um, if it can yeah, just yeah, get past the Mississippi, yeah, people. <laughs> I mean, I think it's shifted like it should. You know, people kind of experience it like if you're on safari and you see a lion, or you're in Yellowstone and you see a wolf. If yeah. you're in the ocean and you see a white shark, because they're really all doing the same function in their system, mm -hmm. but people are putting that together now, have a yep. different level of appreciation for it. Yep. So. And you brought up a key point too. what y'all's really, you know, main focus is now with collecting this data and solving this puzzle, you know, looking for breeding grounds and finding places where you can protect more heavily to ensure, you know, that population can continue to grow because 
if you know anything about sharks, you know their gestation period is long. And, you know, I mean, how what's the average age of a white shark before it reproduces? 18, 20 years or something like that? Go ahead, Brad. I'm not sure. I think, I think that's still um, debatable. I think the science is not conclusive on that, but I think you're probably close to it. Yeah, I think it's probably something similar to human beings anyways. Yeah. Yeah, they're saying that right now the best science we have says, you know, 20 years oldish uh, till they can reproduce. And then they reproduce infrequently, like they can only get pregnant every other year after that. They have about eight babies at a time and live to be, we know, well over 70. We don't know, I, I suspect much longer, but we don't have any data, but we know over 70. So they're, like you said, they can't handle pressure, right? They're late to mature and have few babies infrequently after that. So, you know, it's really easy to wipe them out. Yeah. So, and another, you know, another important thing in this venture you guys have started is, is the partnerships are so key. I mean, you guys, you know, you've got a lot of support from, you know, Costa Yeti and stuff, but now you're tied in with University of Jacksonville. And I mean, how big is that? I mean, that's huge to have that credited science background. I mean, right there, I mean, you're, you're all together now. And uh, I know that's a, uh, that's been a big deal for you guys the last few years getting involved with that. Yeah. I mean, one of the things we wanted to do is look, you can't keep doing things the same way and expect a different result. So the old approach to ocean science where somebody gets a grant and what they get a grant for 50 grand, what are you going to do with 50 grand? I mean, you know, we got big problems and big questions and big science and we need big capacity to answer those questions. And so we had to figure out a way to fund bigger capacity and deliver it to all the scientists. And that was going to be by doing it a different way, bringing the companies together with the uh, public, together with uh, research institutions and universities. You look at uh, Jacksonville University, that's the academic home of OSEARCH. And the city of Jacksonville is building OSEARCH, a permanent um, headquarters in Mayport Village. And the St. John's River there, the dock is just getting ready to go under construction. And, you know, bringing all these different groups of people together and ultimately bringing every person in uh, was the enterprise we wanted to build because we felt like it was going to take us all anyway. Um, it all starts with Brett and the boys on the water, right? But then from there, it, it's going to take total inclusion to, to deliver something good to our kids. And when you look at a thing like Jacksonville University, what that really is, is that's the play to make sure that OSEARCH goes on beyond Brett and Mai's lifespan, right? That's how you give it away to the future. Yep, and uh, so real quick, I know we're kind of winding down, but um, current projects, what's y'all's um, next expedition looking like? I mean, is it coming up pretty soon? And, and um, what else have y'all got planned for 2021? Go ahead, Brett. Well, our next expedition, we're going to be fishing about North Carolina. Um, we'll be fishing off of uh, Lookout Shoals and Frying Pan Shoals area. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, we'll, uh, there's all kinds of interesting stuff that we're looking at there. Hopefully we're there early enough in the time of year um, to have good success there. We're, after there, we're going to move on up and uh, we'll be fishing out uh, Massachusetts and Maine again. And then after that, we'll go back up to Nova Scotia one more time. So we have a we have our year planned out for us. Um, looks like three good expeditions, yeah. and um, that the Canada one's the one I'm most looking forward to. It's, uh, <laughs> it's been our biggest discovery over the last few years. It's been an amazing place for us. Yeah, 
And the, you know, the big thing is there is we're trying to make sure the scientists can finish the science and have good defensible science. And for that, they need a, a big enough sample size. They need enough sharks. It, you see so much of the science is never finished, right? They get a little piece of it going and then they don't get the next. And so we are bound and determined to deliver a sample size to the science team uh, that will allow them to solve the full life history puzzle of the Northwest Atlantic white shark, which is the white shark that lives between Atlantic Canada, the Eastern seaboard and the Gulf of Mexico. And if we know that data set and we can manage those animals, those animals will guard our fish stocks. They will balance the system and our kids will eat fish sandwiches. And we are close. I think we are really down to finding and proving, right? You can't just find it. You got to have the data set to prove it. That's different. And uh, we're really down to proving mating sites or a mating area. And um, we think that our goal is to have that wrapped up in the next two to three years. And then we're going to move the ship and we're going to start there and we're not going to leave until we get those scientists enough data to where they can do the same thing. Otherwise, we've been around the world once and you end up with like a dozen halfway done projects. Right. And that's not leverageable for the future. You got to finish. And so we are in the final stretch of finishing in the Northwest Atlantic, at least this first main phase. I'm sure after they continue to dig into the science, maybe five or 10 years later, they'll need us to come in to give them a little bump in this area or that area because they got a new question. But the meat of it, we're close and, and we're not going to leave until we get them what they need and they finish. Yeah. Yep. And uh, so where can people go? I mean, go ahead and give us, you know, ways that people can get involved with you guys, you know, you know following along with you guys on social media and on the website, you know, donations, you know, you guys do a lot, you know, of different things throughout the year. So, yeah. And, you know, we have a little bit of a different approach. We take that we are a 501c3, so we can take the traditional donation for, philanthropists and people who have foundations and they have to spend a certain amount of that anyway. You know, for regular people who are just consuming items, we, we wanted to do it a different way. I mean, we partner with Coast Sunglasses, Yeti Coolers, SeaWorld, and, you know, we have our own beer and our own bourbon. And so it's like, look, if, you, if you're going to buy a pair of sunglasses for yourself and you're going to be spending time on the water or not, but you want to help the ocean, buy a pair of Costas. I mean, they're great sunglasses. And you're helping the ocean. These guys have been supporting our work for like 17 years. Uh, Yeti's the same way. We have, you know, you can buy the Costa O-Search line at Costa. You can buy the O-Search uh, Yeti cup or just a Yeti cup. Uh, these companies are supporting an abundant future and going to SeaWorld, all these type of things. So just regular consumers, these are things you're going to buy for yourself anyway. Right. Right. So why not do some good while you do that? And you can you can get all that information at osearch.org. And we have a store there. Uh, you know, watch the Osearch YouTube channel with your kids. There's so much cool shark stuff there. Track them at osearch.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram and tweet the sharks. You know, it's really uh, I, I wanted to do something differently. Right. I, I didn't want to do this donation based, always asking for donations. I wanted to try to do something great for the ocean build an enterprise with partners where when people are just consuming their everyday stuff that they need, they can also support research that's going to make sure their kid enjoys an abundant ocean. And the stuff is good, right? It's all good quality, high end stuff. And, and we're really starting to see that take shape now. 
Um, and, and, and the enterprise is what I focus on, right, the most to make sure we can pay for what we do on the water. And um, I'm proud of that. I, I think people want to help. And, and we don't have to ask them to take money out of their savings or if they have extra money for donating, that's great. But if, if they can just focus, and it doesn't even have to be O-Search on what they call conscious capitalism, focus on where you spend your money, no matter what you're buying, there's probably somebody you can buy it from and a portion of it will go to do good for the future. Whether it's O-Search or ducks or trout or elk or deer, <laughs> Uh, and, and, and spend your money that way because you're then a lifelong philanthropist. Yep. You're now a lifelong philanthropist while you buy the very things that you need to enjoy your lifestyle. And I, and I really think that's the path for us all. Yeah. Yep, that's a great way to look at it. And, um, and man, I want to thank you guys for being on. Um, Brett, have you got any final words for the, the show here or? I think we could go on and talk and talk and talk if we just wanted to keep on talking fishing stories, but um, we have to we'll have to do that again sometime. But uh, no, I'm really happy to be on here. Yeah, well, he, he is the real life Aquaman right there, buddy. And nobody knows it. He is such a down low. He's applying his skill set for every single human's future. And he, you know, he could be on any shiny boat he wanted in any fancy harbor, you know, catching big marlin partying at the tiki bar you know but he has chosen to serve the future and he has an amazing gift and every human should be grateful for him yep. thank you i am i appreciate everything you guys do and uh been a fan for a long time and glad to know both of you guys and um what little time we've spent together and stuff and uh and hopefully you know maybe we can uh, get something worked out and have you guys uh do a zoom or something at coast brigade again this summer so um look forward to what's to come this year and uh we'll make sure you guys are uh, safe and everything out on the water and um man can't wait to see what comes this year so thanks for having us we'll thanks do our best you keep up the good work yourself all right thanks for having us all right well folks that's going to do it for this week's show and man, i can't thank Chris and Brett and the whole crew over at O-Search for making this uh, episode happen. It was such an honor to have both those guys on the show today and uh, love hearing those stories and hopefully we can get them back on the show in the future and do another episode with them. Um, if you'd like to learn more about O-Search, just visit osearch.org and check them out on social media and all that stuff. We'll have all that linked in the show notes. And um, just want to thank you again for listening. And please share this podcast with a friend. Um, help us grow this this show. And um, make sure you smash that like button and hit subscribe. And uh, please, if you can, on any of the platforms you're listening to, leave us a review and rating. And we would so greatly appreciate it. Um, until next week, we've uh, got some great episodes coming up. And can't wait to get them to you. So until then, we'll see you on the water. Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. 
A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.